0: Well, friends, it sounds like the green movement is trying to malnourish you one more time. I'm Sheila Gunn Reid, and you're watching the Gun Show. Why does your mayor want to tell you how many calories you can consume in a day and? where those calories should come from. An initiative called C40 Cities involves mayors in big cities all across the world that have signed on to a climate scheme to, quote, confront the climate crisis and create a future where everyone can thrive. And this initiative touches on every aspect of a city's resident's life, from nutrition to transportation to house size. The tentacles of the green movement are fully entangled in municipal governments, and it shows. Calgary recently signed on to an $87 billion climate plan. Ottawa's climate plan is more than $60 billion, and that's Ottawa the city, not Ottawa, as an avatar for all of the Canadian government. No one campaigned on these plans municipally, but voters, well, they've got to pay for them, and outside of the cities. The government is the sharp end of the spear in the Green War on modern agriculture. Trudeau recently announced that nitrogen caps... That we've seen slapped on Dutch farmers, which caused uprisings in the streets, are now coming to Canada. Farmers will have to limit fertilizer use, as though we're already using too much of it. Yeah, right, it's so expensive. Farmers might have to cull livestock. They'll suffer smaller yields, which will also drive up the price of food for the consumer, while farmers suffer financial losses. It's starvation and economic collapse by design. Joining me tonight to discuss the Green War on cities... Cars, farms, and in the end, humanity is my friend, good friend of the show, Ms. Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. So joining me now from her climate cabin in the woods is my she- friend, Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. And I wanted to have Michelle on because. On her incredible YouTube page, the Friends of Science YouTube page, they break down these complex ideas in a way that normal people can understand and and provide arguments you can take off into the world uh, when you encounter climate alarmists. And Right now, the city of Calgary has an enormous climate change plan. I think it's $87 billion is the total cost in the end, and I don't remember that being Uh, An election issue for the residents of Calgary. And I think it stems directly from the so-called non-binding climate emergency that new Mayor Geody Gondek declared after she was elected. They say these things are non-binding, but then they build all these expensive policies on them after. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really needed an expert to help us with this sort of stuff. We'll talk about this. We'll talk about the war on farming. Um, And uh, before we came on air, you had a really um, great assessment of why these things sort of build out of municipal politics and why activists focus on municipal politics.
1: Well, uh, you know, the municipal level politician is very accessible, first of all. So there, you know, your, your ward councillor or alder person is right in your neighbourhood right? You maybe knew them before they even got elected. So, you know, it's quite accessible to bump into them on the street to go to their office. You don't, you know, it's not a long, complicated sort of lobbying process like it is at the provincial or federal level. And you don't have to be registered. <clears throat> and you can be a 16-year-old like Sadie Vipon, Dr. Vipon's daughter. You can go and make a presentation to City Hall and they'll listen to you. They won't listen to Friends of Science Society made of, you know, a group made of professional engineers and professional geoscientists and and scientists of other um, disciplines. But, you know, your daughter can get in there. Um, And part of it is that there's like these climate hubs that have been put together all across the world in various cities. And of course, there's the Calgary Climate Hub. Dr. Vipon used to be the president or leader of it, I'm not sure how it's organized, but these groups are funded and organized by Al Gore's climate reality. So, you know, there's a very strong international network, and yet it's going into the municipal level politics. And why? Well, there's the municipal bond market is uh, one factor, and all of the municipal pension funds are the others, because... There's a group called the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, and these are institutional investors that are handling pension funds. So, there are about a 1,000 signatories, and um, they sit on about $90 trillion in assets under management. And the UNPRI is pushing ESG and, you know, environment social governance goals for everyone every level of government, every corporation, and even every person. So you can see how this transnational, unelected, unaccountable organization through these local groups that are quite activist can easily access city hall and make their case there. And the other factor is that most cities have a university or a few of them, and there's all these academics there pumping out all their wild and crazy social sciences ideas on how to transform the world. And they even here say, to transform cities, support civil society. So, you know, civil society are all these NGOs and community activists, community groups. And it would be great if they would be transforming, say, the homeless section of downtown, working with those people and helping them. There are some you know, civil society groups that are doing that. But in fact, these people have been activated to try and save the planet and stop you from having a stake or driving downtown. And that's where the problem comes, because they're not elected. You never elected them. Um, They're not accountable in any way. So, you know, if this $87 billion plan falls apart, they never have to pay for it. In fact, Calgary is an excellent uh, excellent example because in 2010, they had this group called Imagine Calgary, which is partly civil society and partly in-house. And uh, they put out a, a report called Sustainability 2020, Sustainable Calgary 2020. And they predicted that there would be economic prosperity for everyone by 2020. So this plan was done in 2010 and in 2010, and in 2020, the downtown of Calgary is completely gutted of industry. The tar sands campaign has destroyed most of the big oil and gas and the small oil and gas companies in Alberta and the oil sands reputation worldwide. And um, the mayor and council seem to be off on this green streak, you know, willing to put wind turbines up and solar panels everywhere. But when no one ever voted for that. No one ever voted for the climate emergency. In the presentation that I did, you'll find that the, uh, the person who wrote the presentation said, you know, if this was so important, why wasn't it an election issue? The climate emergency was declared immediately after the election. So obviously, people had been working on it for some time in the background. So that seems to be a breach of public trust in my view. But um, back to you.
0: Yeah, no, uh, before we move on, I just want to touch a little bit on these ESG goals because, uh, you know, you're talking about it and some people are talking about it. I think more people need to be talking about these. uh, I think it's environmental sustainability governance goals. What it amounts to is a green social credit scheme, really.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah, and uh, so it starts uh, evaluating corporate um, activity based on certain very subjective values and morality issues, which have nothing to do with the bottom line. And ironically, um, uh, Steve Sukup, who wrote The um, uh, Dictatorship of Woke Capital, and also actually Vivek Ramaswamy, who's on the same case, they both pointed out that actually... um, This is another great book. Um, They both pointed out that ESG goals actually violate um, certain laws in the United States, which require pension fund trustees to make sure that the investments get the best possible return for shareholders, not that they save the planet or do some airy-fairy thing that these ESG goals want to accomplish. And in order to accomplish this ESG, people are not aware of this, but now they're really starting to count carbon molecules. I'm serious about this. There's a whole international body that's dedicated to establishing scope one, two, and three of a company's emissions. So that means scope one is what you materials you consume that have GHG emissions. Scope two is the emissions involved in making whatever it is. Scope three is whatever your customers do with it. Well, a friend gave me an example the other day, and that was, say, potato growing. I'm a farmer. I grow potatoes. I know how much gas I put in my tractor. I know how much it costs me to plant and harvest. And so I can evaluate all of that. But when I sell it to you, the customer, I don't know if you're going to bake it. If you're going to fry it, if you're going to make it into chips, if you're going to turn it into bagged potato chips or boil it or I don't know. And all of those have different energy uses. And the problem is all these ESG goals and all this kind of reporting is also tied to legal liability. So if I sell you a bag of potatoes and I think you're going to make them into chips and I evaluate scope three that way, but you, in fact, turn them into something else that uses more GHGs, I'm legally liable because I misled the public. So you see how this could be, uh, well, a windfall for environmental lawyers, (laughs) for one, but a nightmare for any company or individual, especially small farmers. But these are the mandates that are being forced upon people and, and for what? To count carbon mono- molecules when carbon dioxide is not the main driver of climate change. It's a consequence of climate change. It's only nominally a driver.
0: You know, and this all sort of leads into the next thing I want to talk about, and that's this C40s cities nonsense. I saw it on Twitter. I thought this cannot even be real, but it is. And it's this group of cities and mayors, again, who have committed to Um, these climate change goals. And it's a global network of mayors taking urgent action. I'm reading from their website to confront the climate crisis and create a future where everyone can thrive. And one of those cities, along with Shanghai, ironically, is Toronto. Delhi's in there too. Ho Chi Minh City's in there. Mexico City. Um, Wuhan. 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 Um, And some of this stuff is, is crazy. So um, one of the things that they're talking about is food systems. And they have said that, you know, the average allotment, it's funny because you've been talking about um, people having, you know, a carbon budget, according to, you know, the climate change control freaks in our lives, that people should have a climate budget. Well, now your caloric budget is tied to your climate budget where in in these documents they say that people are supposed to consume about 2500 calories a day. Right now the mayors have said that too much of that is from the things you need like dairy and eggs and and meat and so in their goals, 2500 calories, your caloric allotment according to your carbon FIco score um, is going to be um, it's it has to be completely from, animal sources and all of this animal or plant or sorry uh, from plant thank you for correcting yeah. me it's all very confusing yeah uh, I, although i suppose unless those animals are crickets I, yes. I mean it's the most bizarre thing ever
1: yes well um you know there. What's happened is that they realize, I mean, on on one level, it's true that cities are the largest concentration of populations. It's true that very dense, huge cities like, say, Tokyo or Shanghai or any of these cities where you actually have millions of people living, you know, they do have complex problems in managing everything about the city because that's a lot of people. Um, So... It's not entirely ridiculous to be concerned about the environmental impact or climate impact of a city, but it is ridiculous to become an eco dictatorship in order to accomplish, you know, efforts to try and reduce emissions or or better manage things in the city. And really, you know, cities are supposed to take care of municipal affairs that being sanitation. Lighting, road clearing, road maintenance—you um, know, parks—the the fundamental things that people pay taxes for—they shouldn't be going off on these wild tangents that cost a lot of money and really do nothing to actually manage the city.
0: Yeah, yeah it's it's bizarre. I mean, when I'm looking at the C40 initiative, they—I'm not sh- sure why John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, should be concerned about supporting an overall increase of healthy plant-based food consumption in our cities by shifting away from unsustainable, unhealthy diets. Now, you want to talk about reducing food waste? I think that's probably a municipal issue. Um, Mm -hmm. Composting food waste? Sure, I'm willing to hear those arguments, but I'm not sure why this is a concern Um, of your local mayors unless this is part of a broader agenda to use climate change and carbon taxes to control every aspect of our lives from how far we drive to who we interact with, to the things we eat.
1: Well, I think that that is it. And also probably to stimulate some new uh, product or thing, you know, because if you look through this, you find that Bloomberg is very prominent as a funder of the um, C40. And he's very, Michael Bloomberg himself is very prominent as, you know, speaking at these events and bringing all these mayors together. And he and his colleagues, uh, Bloomberg and his colleagues are deeply into renewables. You know, uh, Matthew Nisberg wrote a whole thing about um, uh, strategic philanthropy in the post cap and trade era and, he's got all the big philanthropies there, and they're all pushing for global cap and trade systems. So all these things are related to that ultimate goal. And they're also related to the new products that they wanna bring on the market like electric vehicles. So it is conceivable to think that many of these municipal funds, the bonds, the uh, pension plans, are invested in some way, either directly or indirectly, in these products and so the public think oh well taxes are going up but that's okay because we're saving the planet and we're doing the right thing for our kids but in fact you're just making these guys rich and filling up the unfunded pension liabilities that these pension funds have that will um you know continue to strip you of your wealth because nobody wants to talk about the catastrophic unfunded pension liabilities For most public pension plans.
0: Now, I think that, you know, that sort of takes us into an earlier analysis done by Robert Lyman over at Friends of Science on Ottawa's war on the car. Because before Calgary was spending $87 billion on their climate emergency, Ottawa had declared a climate emergency. And I think theirs is in the Range of $60 billion. I can't believe yeah. I'm saying that. So, yeah. I can't believe I'm saying that Ottawa is more reasonable in their spending than Calgary, but here I am. Um, slightly and, taller. <laughs> but th- theirs is so much to do with the war on the car. And for me, I see the war on the car as a war on individual freedom because, you know, once cars became affordable for the average person, it opened up a world to the Mm -hmm. people who had never even left the town that they had ever grown up in. And now we're going in the other direction where uh, we don't want people driving. We don't want them on the roads and we want them using electrical buses um, that don't work in snowy conditions. I can't wait for the first year of this. Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) This is the guy who I think has been consulting to all these people. And this book is total madness. But in fact, what you just mentioned now, I just ran across this this morning Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google, looks to a day not too far off when millions of car share members summon cars electronically. After dropping off the members at their destination, the driverless vehicles will automatically be dispatched to their next pickup or proceed back to the nearest car share lot to charge their electric batteries and await the summons. I've seen this movie. The cars Uh,
0: kill all the people. (laughs)
1: And it says here, why would anyone want to own and maintain an automobile when they could access a driverless vehicle from a car sharing service at a moment's notice from their cell phone and have it ferry them effortlessly with GPS guidance to their destination, paying only for the precise time they're using the vehicle? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I want the freedom to get in my car whenever I want. I don't want to be tracked. I don't want some anonymous robot driving me around. I like driving. I want to, in fact, I'd like to have a gear shift car again because it yeah. was so much fun, a manual. So, you know, it, it's my personal freedom. And if you live in the city and you want to do Uber all your life, go nuts, have fun. But I don't. I like my car. Yeah. But this guy, he's consulted to Angela Merkel. He's very proud of that. And you know the situation that Germany's in right now? It's almost on its knees. It's on the verge of collapse. They're closing, probably going to have to close the Ludwigshafen factory of BASF, the world's largest manufacturer of chemicals and products that we use every day, 20,000 of them. And uh, because they they just don't have enough natural gas, so they can't make the products and they, they don't have enough power to run the factory. So this is... 39,000 people will be out of work. And it's thanks to climate astrology rather than practical common sense. And this guy.
0: (laughs) Well, I I was reading the other day that in Germany, because of uh, sanctions on Russian gas, which easily could have been addressed if Canada would export liquefied natural gas, but um, that they are facing basically rolling brownouts that they are putting restrictions on the amount of hot water that you can use to deal with the natural gas shortage. And that's all been uh, because of their pursuit of green energy. They've got plenty of coal (laughs) that they could excavate and burn to create electricity that people could use, but they've decided to move away from coal, become reliant on um, other forms of energy, including Russian gas. And now they've gotten themselves in this big fat mess. And this just goes to just how bad the green energy movement is for people and how energy security is world security.
1: That's right. right. And uh, one thing I, I must point out to you that even if we had LNG terminals in Canada, We could not ship LNG to Germany because they have never built an LNG receiving terminal, if you can believe it. They've relied entirely on the pipelines from Russia and they didn't build those terminals because the Green Faction saw the building of them as uh, meaning that it would just be... uh, further embedding fossil fuels in the future of Germany. And so now they're really, really stuck. And those people already are suffering. I mean, you know, Marine Pools in 2018, like we've got a little clip on our our, uh, YouTube channel. He told us that people were spending Christmas by a single candle because their power had been cut off. You know, and you see many farmers there Uh, who initially jumped on the bandwagon for wind and solar because it provided extra income. Well, then the subsidies were cut and some of them are losing their farms. Some of them are committing suicide because, you know, they've been tricked into this uh, renewable energy. We're going to be industrial energy farmers, you know, but it, it doesn't work out because, in fact, Germany is still running on coal. It's still running on nuclear, and it's running on imported uh, nuclear from uh, France and gas from Russia. But uh, the wind and solar that it has is very unpredictable, and they can't operate it without the fossil fuel and nuclear backup. So it's it's really a dead-end game. And yet uh, we actually just put out a press release today calling on Antonio Guterres to resign because. He has been claiming that, you know, because of the situation in Germany and Russia and the war with re- Ukraine, we should make a fast move to renewables. He's, in fact, advocating for the world to go down the same suicidal path as Germany. It's insane.
0: No, I, I, I remember Morayan's, I forget which documentary it was, where he pointed out that Besides this big mess with green energy in Germany, they're also incentivizing farmers to not produce food, but produce uh, foodstuffs that are used in biofuels, which then hurts the consumer at the grocery store because limited arable land space is now used to produce things that could easily be replaced by fossil fuels.
1: That's right. And uh, yes, the film is The Uncertainty is Settled. We have all of his films on our YouTube channel. They're all free to watch. They're beautifully shot. They're wonderful films, very insightful. But in that one, as kind of a test for himself. Now, you know, just remember, he'd been working overseas in brutal conflict countries where people were absolutely poor all over, you know, the Africa, um, South Asia really difficult conflict countries where people actually came and put a gun to his head yeah. and he had to make decisions about what to do next. He comes back to Europe and Germany and finds that, wow, you know, all these fields are filled with biofuels. I've got solar panels and wind turbines in the farm. And his his background is as a um, gardener and agricultural expert. Yeah. So he put, gives himself the test of, I wonder if I can buy a sack of potatoes in you know, my region. He jumps on the tractor and goes looking. He can't. There's no food there. And then he has another encounter with uh, a, a kind of a local philosopher guy who says to him, you know, after World War II, at the end of the war, people would come out here to the country with millions of dollars worth of jewels looking for a sack of potato. Yeah. You know, that's how hungry they were. That's how important food security is. And we're just uh, abandoning that with these crazy climate plans. It's totally insane. It's so dangerous. People don't understand, like we are right now eating last year's crop. So yeah. if we don't grow enough food this year, nobody has food to eat next year yeah. and yeah. so on. And you need the seed crop from this year's crop. For next year's crop. But if you grow less this year, you'll have less to see next year, and on and on and on. So, you know, it's almost like the Holodomor of the Ukraine under Stalin is being repeated, but by these bizarre globalist forces and the green movement. Yeah. I mean, it will result in depopulation, it will result in millions of people dying.
0: You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do want to talk to you about these bizarre nitrogen targets um, that are being currently imposed in Holland by Prime Minister Mark Rutte. but they are also going to be imposed on Canadian farmers. In Holland, they are suggesting that farmers may have to abandon portions of their land to meet these targets. It's limiting fertilizer use, which limits their yield, and farmers are price takers, not price makers. And uh, they may have to call livestock to get themselves under these emissions targets. And Justin Trudeau sees an uprising in Holland. He sees riots in Sri Lanka and says, why don't I do that, too? And so he's imposing nitrogen targets on Canadian farmers. And, you know, I've been reading the book Green Murder by Mm -hmm. Ian Plymer. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's all in there that this this really these environmentalist policies, be it through energy shortage or food shortages, it really is the most anti-human genocidal um, movement in modern history.
1: Yes. And uh, just from our press release, actually, um, uh, according to Paraguayan agricultural expert Albrecht Glatzel, he's published uh, a number of items And he said that the um, United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has never done a proper baseline of emissions for livestock. And so that means that they just made assumptions about, oh, well, we have so many livestock today, so this must be the emissions. They never went back and looked at the state of nature before. Like, for instance, in North America, there used to be about 100 million buffalo running all over the place (laughs) that declined to about 1,000 toward the end of the 1880s, and those herds have now largely been replaced by domestic livestock. But, you know, there's no proper assessment of how things were before we began the kind of farming that we have now. And there's also um, a U.S. Department of Agriculture report, which looks at the European uh, Farm to Fork Policy That's what it's called. And uh, in that, they found, this was done in 2020, they found that if the farm to fork policy was adopted globally, it would drive up food prices 89%, which in turn would increase the number of food insecure people in the world's most vulnerable regions by 22 million, if it was only the EU that adopted it, or 185 million people,
0: if adopted globally. It's terrible. I mean, it's just, and it's not, it's not the elites that will starve. They're no. fine with their five kids and their beachfront houses. It is people who are going to be forced into, as you always say, eat heat or eat poverty. Um, and they won't even be able to make that choice because it, they'll be so nutritionally insecure. They will be eating, and starving, eating what they call their planetary diet, but still being so nutrient deficient that they're still starving. That's right, and I mean, that, was, that report was
1: done in 2020. So that's before the conflict with Ukraine and Russia, where something like 25 to 30% of the world's wheat and fertilizer comes from that region. And those wheat exports go to countries. Some of those countries are almost 100% reliant on that wheat. And the thing is, just like with energy, there's no extra wheat in the system. You know, there's nobody who's got like a, wow, now we can get rid of all this surplus wheat. It's like at this point, people are going, um, we're not going to sell any more wheat to anybody. We'll just keep it because <laughs> we see what's coming. So India is not exporting any more wheat. They've put a ban on it. So, you know, this is a very, very serious situation. And Canada is one of the world's breadbaskets. And farmers, as you know, mostly they're farm families. They work very hard night and day. And um, these guys are just going to run them out of
0: business. You know, uh, I was listening to Matt Walsh um, from the Daily Wire the other day. And he said something that I... I've, I've always thought it, but I never quite knew how to put it into words. It is people who are so far din- disconnected from the land, making decisions for me yeah. about how I am to use the land that I have stewarded for generations. They truly don't understand. They live in a concrete jungle thinking that I have the same disregard for nature that they have when yeah. my yeah. livelihood relies on a healthy ecosystem around me.
1: Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, Catherine McKenna talking about, oh, you know, there's all kinds of new things that farmers can do, like air seeding. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, we've
0: been, doing <laughs> <that>. <laughs>
1: we've been doing that for you know, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. I mean, today's farming is so modern and advanced, um, you know, just everything. I mean, there's a really great video clip with uh, Quick Dick McPick, a yep. few, a few hot words in there, but, you know, he really does give a very good explanation of how advanced it is and how farmers really care for their own land. Because as you say, that's where you make your living. That's where you get your crop from. And, you know, it probably was your, your parents' or grandparents' land. And you inherited that heritage. You want to continue it uh, with love, with, uh, with care. So, um, you know, it's just insane. I, I don't know how we can stop them. That's the big problem because, yeah. you know, these policies are coming from bodies that are unelected, unaccountable, transnational groups like the World Economic Forum and, um, you know, the uh, uh, Club of Rome with their alleged planetary emergency. You know, and they're all advocating for wind and solar. And what happens often is, you know, they put the farmers in a corner, make them... Um, economically unstable. And then they come along and say, how about if we put a wind farm on your land? How about some solar panels? Well, you know, if you got to survive, you probably say yes. So, you know, it's very interesting to me that the Prairie Climate Center out of Winnipeg, which is funded by insurance companies that have investments in renewables, is pushing renewables on farmers. And they're also using the most catastrophic scenario called RCP 8.5 as if it's the business as usual scenario when it's not. So, you know, they're actually government funded, they're funded by insurers and they're misleading the public and they're leading farmers down the garden path to the economic hell that's happening in Germany. Yeah. And that will lead all of us into a food crisis, even here in Canada. Like, don't think that this is just going to happen overseas to some poor countries. It will happen there, but it's coming here fast.
0: Well, when you think about food shortages and then already coupled with sky high food inflation, um, it, you know, if there's food to buy at the grocery store, good luck if you can afford it. Um, and, you know, it's funny that you you point out the scheme of the green movement to sort of force farmers into putting wind turbines and and solar panels on their land. That's why they attacked fracking so hard. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Frack Nation made by Phelan McAleer, but he sort of documents how fracking and directional drilling and fracking saved so many Pennsylvania farmers from ruination because Mm -hmm. they were still able to farm the land on top of the lease. Uh, The directional drilling, the small pad for uh, like a small drilling footprint for fracking. Mm -hmm. And the farmers were making the royalties and they were able to hang on to their generational farms and still be productive farmers while having this extra income stream. And the green movement doesn't like that because they want solar panels on your land and not wheat and not cattle and not corn. And uh, fracking made that possible.
1: Yeah, well, there are a number of uh, grant documents uh, associated with the Tar Sands campaign and groups like Pembina Institute and others, where the intention is to force farmers into wind and off oil and gas. So, you know, that was a big part of the Tar Sands campaign and also to shut down any dissenting voices like you or me. Right. (laughs) So, uh, and foreign funded. So, you know, it's um, we're really in a bind. And now, you know, as we said in our press release, the climate activists used to be annoying, just annoying and expensive. But now they're actually life threatening.
0: Yeah. And, and for our politicians, you know, with the liberals in power, they really stand to lose nothing by attacking farmers because farmers don't vote for them. And, and uh, you know, they're rich elites. They'll be fine at the grocery store, but the rest of us, we won't be.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, we're in a very compromised situation.
0: Yeah. Very dangerous. And it'll be the least amongst us who feel the pain first and the hardest. Um, Michelle, uh, how do people support the work that you're doing over at friends of science? Because you've been ringing the alarm bells about heat or eat poverty for years. The rest of us are just catching up to you um, because now it's come to agriculture. They're attacking the farmers now, but long before this, you know, people were being put in these, this compromised position through to just the sheer prices of energy due to injecting um, unreliable green energy into the grid. Uh, so how do people support the work that you do? Because as I said, off the top of the show, you're taking these big, huge ideas, breaking them down so that people understand what this means in your family and in your neighborhood.
1: Um, well, thanks for that. And um, yes, in 2015, when the Notley government pushed for the 30% renewables in Alberta, we told people that the power prices would triple. And sure enough, the average pool price today is triple what it was in 2015. And that's from coal phase out, it's from the spike in natural gas, and that we use more natural gas. And we have to import coal power from Saskatchewan, Montana and hydro from BC and pay for that. So, you know, that's a big failed policy that we warned about then. And people said, oh, you crazy climate deniers. Now they're all screaming. But think about that. So you can uh, help us out by um, becoming a member. Uh, You can uh, give us a donation. We're in our 20th year of operation. So if you'd like to give us 20 bucks, that would be great. If you can give us more, great. And if you can't, why not? just share our stuff. And you can find us at friendsofscience.org. You can find us on YouTube, on Twitter, on uh, LinkedIn, on um, Instagram. Uh, I, I'm might i forgetting something. <laughs> anyway, we're on most social media, <clears throat> mainstream social media. So, And we'd love to hear from you. We also, you know, we don't mind if you have a different point of view. We're not trying to make you think like us. We're trying to offer you ideas and insights to help you, excuse me, to help you address these issues with your friends, families, and your elected officials. Because a lot of people don't know the power grid, for instance, is very complicated. So it sounds great when people say, oh, we're going to put free wind and solar on the grid. And (laughs) then years later, you find out, wait a minute, my power price just tripled Why is that? I thought that was free. Oh, it'll
0: be free once we give more, and get more of them up, then it will be free. And we'll get off coal. Don't worry. We'll get off coal, but here we are importing cold coal fired energy from Montana. So, right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So yeah, if you can uh, help us out with 20 bucks for our 20th year, that would be great. If you want to become a member, then you get our clisai uh, which is a roundup of recent climate science, or our extracts, which is a roundup of IPCC material that, you know, a lot of people don't know that the UN and the IPCC are always having these conferences and making plans for you behind your back, right? <laughs> never in the, in the mainstream. But you'll get insights from uh, extracts on that. So, And those are put together by our volunteers, dedicated volunteers.
0: Yeah, you guys really do uh, incredible work on a shoestring budget, and you're up against the deep pockets of the foreign-funded environmental movement, but not just foreign-funded, funded funded by uh, our governments, too. Um, Michelle, thanks so much for taking the time. You're always so generous with your time, and um, you really have a heart for the people who will be harmed by these out-of-control climate policies. Thanks. Thanks, Sheila. Thanks, Michelle. Well, friends, we've come to the portion of the show where we go looking for your viewer feedback. One of the best ways to do that is to send it to me in the form of an email. Just send me an email to Sheila at rebelnews.com. Put gun show letters in the subject line so I can easily find it. But I also go looking for your comments on our Rumble videos as well. Today I have two emails actually that I want to read. The first one is from someone that will remain anonymous. He is a Catholic priest in the Diocese of Calgary who writes to me about my show with Adam Sos when I was covering for Ezra Levant last week. And we were talking about the papal visit to Edmonton and some Indigenous Communities in and around Edmonton, and then a Callaway, and then off to Quebec, and the reasons for it happening. And the reason I'm keeping this priest name anonymous is we know what the other side of this does when they think they uh, are. I guess, in disagreement. That's all it really takes. A lot of these people were not wronged by anybody, but they just don't like the church. So they just vandalize churches and burn them down. And I mean, these are the sorts of people who shove pro-life women into the street. So I don't want to give out this priest's name, but I do appreciate his candor and his comments to me. He's a Roman Catholic priest in the Diocese of Calgary. And he appreciates that I pointed out on the Ezra Levant show the other night, the reason for Pope Francis's visit to Canada stems from a lie, i.e., the mass grave discovery in Kamloops, and that is true. It was initially reported as a mass grave, and now a year later, no bodies have been recovered. It was gone from a mass grave to multiple graves. To we haven't excavated anything, and if it is. What people say it is, then it's a crime scene, and we need to investigate it that way, but they're not, and I wonder why that is. Now, my new priest friend goes on to suggest that uh, we interview some of the authors of the following article from the Dorchester Review that breaks down some of the alternative history regarding some of people's experiences in the residential school system. The next letter comes from Mark, and Mark writes to me, Hey, Sheila, another great show this past Wednesday. I believe they continue with the climate scare because of... A scared population is easy to control. Well, this is in relation to my show with Tom Harris from the International Climate Science Coalition. We were talking about his op-ed about how the Conservative Party is doing a lot of conceding of the language of the left to the left on the climate issue. Instead of talking about, you know, adaptation and resiliency, they are talking about, well, the same climate apocalypse that the left keeps promising promising us is always coming, but never does. Mark goes on to write, I don't like the way the Conservative Party is sounding more like the Liberals every day. I thought early on Pierre was a great choice for new leader. That's Pierre Polyev, but now I'm not so sure. But on to a previous week about the ban on plastic bags. You guys, you know how I could talk about the ban on plastic bags all day long because I find it so particularly loathsome. Mark writes, We always reuse the plastic bags for burnable garbage. And I also use them on the road for my dirty laundry. You know, my husband does that too. And I am reliably informed that there are laundry machines in camp, but he's always bringing that dirty laundry home for me. I don't know what's going on there. But then, of course, they get reused afterwards for the garbage too. Yes, I'm helping add CO2 to the atmosphere by burning everything that can be and only taking non-burnable garbage to the dump. Anyway, I look forward to next week's episode. And not to worry, I keep thinking so I don't get manipulated. Yeah, yeah. the war on plastic is the war on convenience and sanitation. It's just so ridiculous. It's really just a proxy war on oil and gas. Anyway... If you'd like for me to read your letter on air, it's really easy. Just go and send me an email at SheilaRebelnews.com at and I do my best to select them at random. Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to everybody in the office in Toronto and I guess around the country who works to put the show together. We'll see everybody back here in the same time, in the same place next week. And remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think.